I'm Eduardo Lopez, and this is the State of Public Education podcast, where we examine the past, present, and future of public education. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the State of Public Education. Today, I'm recording this introduction on Monday, October 23rd. And my intent was to have uploaded the episode last week, but I got caught up with all my responsibilities of teaching and also field supervising uh, a group of ethnic studies teachers that I just didn't have time to edit and and then upload it um, last week. So my apologies. I also just want to briefly just want to say that also I've been thinking a lot about the Israeli and Palestinian situation. And I know it could be difficult to talk about it um, because it can be really nuanced in, in terms of what's happening. Um, so for me, initially, for example, I was really horrified by the kidnappings of uh, of Israelis by Hamas, and I was just really taken aback by um, a lot of the reporting um, and what was happening to some of those people that had been um, kidnapped. And so my heart went out to the families of those uh, family members and loved ones who had been kidnapped. And then I also became increasingly horrified in the way that the state of Israel was using those kidnappings as a justification for um, for a pretext for war and to be able to, to go into Gaza and displace um, over a million people um, in, that, in that region of the world. And it's now created into a humanitarian crisis. And so it's not easy for me to be able to say it's, it's this way or that way, um, but I do feel uh, in particular, sympathy for the uh, for the Palestinian um, people who um, have historically been experiencing uh, oppression, and and also in the way that the, the United States has also um, justified that oppression of the Palestinian people and the role that they play to uh, legitimize uh, Israel's use of, of violence. Uh, and so I, I, I see that now, too, in the way that uh, President Biden it continues to justify um, the way that the Israeli government is is waging war and also just continuing to arm um, the is Israeli government. So my hope is that somehow we, we get into uh, a place where there is, um, we can call for a ceasefire and continue negotiations for a way to uh, address the needs of the Palestinian people. So it's, yeah, it's with a heavy heart that uh, I, I, I think about um, the situation and, and the people there and, the, the, and our role as educators to be able to help young people um, to be able to sort through um, the way that um, the bias in the media and the way it's being presented.
and and also even on on social media um, to be able to have um, more facts and enter into that conversation um, beyond just uh, a, a really uh, duality that has to be one way or another. And there's a lot of complexity to that history um, that is there. In this episode, I invite Esther Kim to talk about her experience becoming a teacher and the way she integrated social justice into her teaching. She is now a computer science um, instructor doing professional development in this area. And she continues to think about how social justice guides um, the work that she does. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Thank you very much. So welcome everybody today. We have Esther Kim, who is the program coordinator of educational services for the Fullerton School District. Thank you, Esther, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I am too. Um, <laughs> for speaking to you, and, and we, especially, um, you know, given the, the kind of the content of um, math and science and STEM. Uh, and, and so one of the things I always like to do is just if you could maybe just maybe introduce yourself and kind of walk us through a little bit of your own personal journey and beginning uh, like um, about um, what, why did you become a teacher and what were your experiences like as a, uh, as a math teacher since that was where you kind of started out? Sure. So I, my dad always likes to say uh, being an educator is kind of in my blood because his his father was a teacher and he has a brother who's who was a teacher for a long time his brother just retired a couple of years ago but um yeah and my dad he's actually a pastor so he's kind of an educator too so he, he always says my blood. um but i'd say he he probably didn't want me to be an educator uh growing up he wanted me to be a lawyer uh, then he would say you should be a news anchor. Then he would say you should be a pharmacist, and and he would always talk about um, your quality of life, right? I want your quality of life to be better than it was for me. And he would say things like this, and I didn't really. Uh, it didn't resonate with me every time because for him he would talk about the money, and for me it was like that's not how I function. I don't chase the money. That's not going to motivate me to do anything, right? Um, so I did kind of, I did, I did buy into his narrative. I did uh, get into a pharmacy school program. I uh, it was a five year program. I got in when I was eighteen, and by the time you're twenty three, you would have a doctorate in pharmacy a pharmd but i just couldn't i i can't live out somebody else's dream right so um so then what was my dream um so when i was younger uh from very early age i was interested in uh being a teacher i don't know exactly why but i i was thinking about it there's a couple things that happened so in, when I was in eighth grade, there was a, a girl at my church and she was in 12th grade and we didn't really know each other well, but all of a sudden she started to take uh, an interest in my life and she she just she just would ask me questions, how you're doing in school, that kind of thing. And um, if I was struggling anything, she would help me. And she went to UCLA. So when I was in eighth grade, she was in 12th grade, she got into UCLA. And she's so proud of this. 
and I, my parents always told me to go to college, but I didn't really know what that meant really. But she was so proud that she got into UCLA. Then she declared she's going to be a teacher. And she's so proud of it. She really elevated the teaching profession in my head, the way she had so much pride about what she's going to do. And uh, right now she's a principal in LAUSD. And she really, she really elevated the profession and made it really noble and in my mind. And um, uh, growing up, so when I was little, um, I, my mom, she didn't go to college when I was little. She finished college after I graduated from college, after me. My dad, he had a post-secondary, uh, he, he had a Master of Divinity from Azusa Pacific University. Um, my grandmother on my mom's side, she had a sixth grade education, whereas her husband, he had gone to college. My grandmother on my dad's side she had no formal education while I told you her husband was a teacher okay and then my mom she hadn't gone to college she had a couple she she went to uh, Pierce College um she had a few units from there but but um she didn't finish because she had three kids and she just never finished so you see the pattern in my in my in my life right you see a pattern all the males have formal education while the women, they don't. So I think this was um, something that I felt like, for me, it's it's normal, right? It's very normalized in my family to, um, to be someone, like as a woman, in the future, you're gonna support your husband's dreams. And uh, that comes first, and then it's gonna be you. But for me, I, I did really well in school. Um, I felt like I, I could do more right than, um, than just supporting my husband, right? That's not my goal in life. Um, so I, I always did well in school, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But in eighth grade, I met that, my, 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 um, that mentor and she made a huge difference in my life. Right. Um, we were, we were really poor growing up I we didn't have a lot of things um when my parents immigrated to the U.S. we uh I was born here but then I did live in Korea for a little bit and then we came back here we were we didn't have a home we lived in my aunt's house um for a few months then we finally got a home a two-bedroom apartment and then eventually the two-bedroom apartment we had my I have a sibling I have a girl uh sorry sister and a brother so there's five of us um but we were in a two bedroom apartment, which doesn't sound like it's it's a, it's plenty of space for five people, but we have the money. So my dad, he sublets one of the rooms to a complete stranger. OK, and so we're living with this complete stranger. My sister and I are living in the living room. This is kind of the situation we're living in. But my parents always right. You were going to college because you're going to live a better quality of life than we are. OK, that's their message always. Did I, I do want to live a better quality of life, but the money itself doesn't, it, that's not the thing that's going to motivate me. Then I meet in eighth grade, my friend who she elevates the teaching position. Right. And in my heart, I'm like, I, that makes sense to me because she elevated it so much. She even showed, she was so 
detailed. She would show me this is how much you would make the first year. After a few years, this is how much more you would make. You know, she showed me the numbers. It made sense to me. Um, and she's just so proud of who she is. And for me, I I felt so um in high school, I told you I did well in school, but I was super depressed because I felt like all my classes were useless. Okay. I'm like, I don't get why we have to learn all this. Um, I didn't feel like there was any connection made between me and any of my teachers, really. Um, I can't think of I I could think of maybe one that I had a good connection with, but other than that, I didn't really feel connected. Um, everything was like just about you take the AP exam, you take the IB exam and you you need to pass. But it's like, why? What's the why? Right. But it was it was super depressing for me. Um, so so then I got to college at UCLA and I met a bunch of people um, that were different from me. Right. In in many different ways. But there was this one I specifically remember one of my classmates in one of my education courses. I decided to try to take education course because of my friend who mentored me. And I was like, I want to. Oh, what was your major? Economics. Oh, your economics. Yes. So I took this course. And he, and one of my friends walked, he's not my friend, he's my classmate. He walks in and he's totally dejected. And he says, this is the last time I can take this calculus course. My dream is to be an engineer, but I cannot pass this calculus course. And this is my last chance. I just can't do it. And he starts blaming his um, his high school. Like my high school didn't prepare me for this education class at, I'm mean, sorry, this math class at uh, UCLA. And I'm like, you know what? I I was always good at math, but I hated my math classes. Now I hear my this guy telling me um, he can't pass his math class because he wasn't prepared to take it. And I'm thinking this whole thing is messed up because a guy who's that passionate about being an engineer should be able to find another way than just this one gatekeeper math class. That's kind of, you know, we call them weeder classes that are mm -hmm. it's intended to weed him out. Right. And it's doing a really good job of weeding him out. Um, cause this is like, I think he said it was the second or third time and he can't take it again after. Um, uh, so I was like, okay, you know what? I had a bad experience with my math class, even if I did well. And he, this, this guy, he needs this math class, but he can't even, he says he can't pass because his high school didn't prepare him well. Obviously there's some kind of need. So then I decided, okay, I'm going to be a math teacher. And so that's what I did after, um, after college, I was an econ major. I did the education studies minor, and then I decided to be a math teacher. I went to Cal State Fullerton to get my credential. And um, yeah, and then after that, I started teaching in Norwalk for, I did that for seven years. Yeah, so basically when it comes down to how did I become a math teacher? I think um, basically it's my friend and that who I met, met in eighth grade who really elevated the position. And then also it I had a strong why, that's what I needed. Like whatever I was gonna do, I had to have a strong why. And um, I had my why and so, yeah. So, so think to your first year mm -hmm. walking into uh, as a math teacher with your credential walking into your classroom what were your experience or expectations as a as a brand new math teacher in Norwalk 
so I loved my credential program. There were um, there were really good professors, and then there were some professors who were very old school, and they would teach us things like don't smile until Christmas. You have to be so hardcore. Don't let the kids see you smile. Don't let them see any weakness in you. You know, don't just just lay down the law, that kind of thing. Um, and so when I walked in, I felt like the first year, that's what I had to do. <laughs> so I was, I'm not naturally that kind of person, but I was very strict um, and following the discipline plan to a T and and but I wasn't happy. <laughs> it was it was very unnatural for me. And it was uh, for my students. That's not the kind of environment they want to be in. That's the kind of environment. That was my why I didn't want to be that kind of teacher. But yet that's who I became. So in my first year, um, I think I had a lot of battles with my students right a lot of power struggles with my students uh because I was trying to lay down the law kind of teacher I would say did they um learn math I I think they did they did because um one of the things that were core to me was that when I become a teacher the students are not just going to follow procedures they're going to understand what they're doing they're gonna um whatever procedure they're doing in fact let's not even do procedures if you don't even know why it works okay everything's gonna make sense from step from uh, from the beginning to the end everything has to make sense if not i don't feel like that's good math education so did they learn did they learn concepts yes did we have a good relationship i think i think we did have relationships but it didn't have to be like that it could have been way better um, and so I decided I'm not happy. So, so after that first year, I changed that. That's not, it's not going to, I'm not, I'm going to smile right from the beginning and I'm going to be more relational. I, um, a few years later, I enrolled in, um, the master's program at UCLA. Um, and I decided, you know, that's not the teacher. I, I don't want to be that kind of teacher. So, um, I started doing more home visitations, um, being more uh, being more open with who I am, sharing my stories. Um, the content, I feel like I was still getting better and better at uh, helping students understand the concepts of math, not just following some kind of procedures that's in the textbook. Um, and then making the math relate to something they care about. And then reading the world through numbers right and how numbers can be used to as a tool also to manipulate um, also to harm um so the class is not just about the the math standards but we layered it with things that they cared about can, can you give an example of that like what would be can you think of something a lesson or something like that you did where you're using that Math to yeah. read the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite example is one I've shared with you about. Is we started bringing in um, advertisements from that they would get in their mailbox, right? Because this is stuff that's coming to their home directly. So then we would bring them in, and then we would analyze what is this advertisement really about? Um, what do these numbers mean? Kind of thing. Um, so 
uh, one example that uh, I shared with your class about, I think in last summer, was it last summer I talked to your class, was there was an advertisement for a furniture store, right? And then it says the price of the furniture if you buy it outright, then there's the price of the furniture if you decide to finance it, right? And so then we would calculate, well, how much is it really after five years, right? That couch that might not even be useful after five years anymore because it might break down. But how? what is the true monetary cost of that if all that interest is applied? Um, so then we start thinking, wait, is this a furniture store or is it just like a bank? They're exactly like the bank. They're like, basically giving us money for something and just charging us um uh fee for using their money basically it's like a bank disguised as a furniture store they're they they're working exactly the same right um and then something cool that happened was on the other side right it was the advertisement in spanish and then when we were looking at the spanish a lot of the information that was in the english was missing in the spanish um, and it was critical information for people to know, like the interest rate or how much it was going to be per month. That kind of information was missing. So then we would, then the kids would get all angry. And this was the kid wanting to translate this. I, it wasn't even my idea. Um, and then he, we all got angry. Hey, how come it's not there? How come the information's not there? Then we would write to the furniture store. Hey, did you know? <laughs> did you know that you left this critical information out on the other side? Um, things like that. We would try to, um, and and in I taught middle school at that time, and the interest uh, is a is a content standard, right? But then we usually just teach it to, through formulas, I equals PRT, whatever, and it means nothing to the students. But if you put context in it like this, then and they can see, oh my goodness, math is a tool in my life. People are can manipulate me um, through numbers, right, and through missing information and. And I can I can be as smart as whoever made this advertisement understand what's going on. Yeah. So you so you were in the classroom then for seven years. Uh huh. Yes. Oh, okay. For middle school, yes. And what what did you do then after um, that those seven years? Of what caused you to kind of rethink what your role might be? So some things happened in my personal life. Uh, I was pregnant and then I lost the baby really late in my uh, pregnancy. My water broke uh, and the baby was born, but then it it was, it just didn't make it. So then I decided I'm going to take a little break. I told my school district, I, I just need to take a little break because it, it did really shake me to my core that this happened. Um, and I was in a financial situation where I could take a little break. I decided to take a little break. And then during that break, I got really bored. Right? <laughs> I'm not a person who does nothing. So then I, I was looking on some job forums and then I saw some positions for student teacher supervisors. There was some positions at um, Cal State Fullerton, Biola University, and you see Irvine. So I put it out in all of them, and then all of them called back, and they wanted me to work. So the first year, I worked at all three of the universities, but then I, I decided that was too crazy 
So I became more busy when I was trying to take a break. And then so I decided to just work at UCI because they also offered some lecturing in their package. So then I decided to just uh, trim it down, work at UC Irvine. And then I um, was supervising students, doing lecturing. Also, I worked a little bit in the Irvine Math Project, which is a, um, I would say, professional development for teachers to go beyond just procedures and go beyond just plugging into, you know, we call it plug and chug. Don't do that. Like, don't just tell students to use formulas that they don't understand and memorize things um, and make a horrible uh, experience for everyone but that kind of um yeah so I worked for the Irvine Math Project a little bit and then it was a great experience for me to be a teacher of teachers kind of um because I could see the classroom from not just the teacher point of view but for from kind of um I'm not a really an outsider, but I can see kind of more of what's happening in the classroom. So then with my teachers, they're all math majors, right? So they don't really need content area help. That's not what they need. It's like, hey, did you notice that during this period, you only talked to five guys, five boys, male students, and you didn't talk to any female students? And the teacher, oh, okay, okay, I'm going to work on that. Okay. Next time where I'm observing, oh, yeah, that was good. You did talk to more female students. Yeah, did you notice? Did you notice, Esther? I talked to more female students. Yeah, 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 that's good. That's good. But you know what? I was looking at the types of questions you were asking the males. You would ask them really deep, complicated questions. And then to the females, you would just ask them like computational ones. Like, you know, what is this times this? You know what? Okay, okay. Yeah, I don't really know why I do that. Right. Well, so then I started seeing how I can help the teachers. They don't need, like I said, they don't need the content help. Right. It's really how do I um, make an experience where everyone, all of these uh, students can learn in equitable ways. Right. Where where your little biases is not is not um, causing you to think make certain populations think something about themselves that's not true right so um that was really fun I did that for a while and it was it was really it was eye-opening for me and also I hope for my students to to see um how their little how their beliefs that they might not even be aware of affect the classroom and affect the future of all their students mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting that, that kind of to think about it. I mean, that's a lot of some work that we also do in teacher ed and thinking about our own implicit biases that we have um, that that we're not that we don't recognize or we don't we don't see right. And so part of it is is working in community with others to to help us uncover that and then trying to be able to then be conscious and make those conscious choices about making those changes in our in our pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. That, and that was a lot of the work that you did. So then you finished. Um, how long did you do that for, for uh, Irvine? Uh, 
It was overlapping a little bit because I did take a break, but I did eventually go back to my classroom. So okay. it overlapped, but in total, I was at Irvine for about eight years, I think. Yes, about eight years. And did you notice having been the classroom teacher and then having done the, the supervision, when you went back into your classroom, did you see, did you, did you, were you conscious about making certain um, additions to your pedagogy or being conscious of those changes? No, I think so. I think I was way more, um, I was way more conscious about the inter, inter individual interactions that I'm having with all my students. Um, and the types of things that I'm saying to students, the types of questions I'm asking, the type of expectations I'm having. Um, it definitely did have a difference. Uh, Can you give I, an example of that? Hmm. I think it also just made me more conscious about um, why are we doing the things that we're doing, right? It made me, me think more macro level of my school situation. So um, like, why do we have, uh, why do we have detentions where students just stare at a wall? What, what are, why is it such a waste of time, right? Um, or things like, um, how come uh, students can't take certain courses because they shouldn't be excluded from taking certain courses just because they want to take another course. Like, what can we do on a macro level so that a student who wants to take band can also take a technology class, you know, that kind of thing. I became more like in a macro level. I think it opened my mind to be, um, yeah, more macro plus to focus in more on the micro interactions that I was having with my students. So before then, you would say that those weren't questions that were entering into your head as a as a math teacher. I think I think so. When I first became a math teacher, I was very micro, only thinking about the day to day of my classroom. Then when I got then I, when I was in my um, grad program, it started mm -hmm. opening my eyes more. Mm -hmm. Then when I it's just more and more opening, I guess. And so when I went to work outside of the classroom and came back, it was just a progression more of, mm. of yeah, of that. But yeah, it's I, I would say that when I first was entering the teaching profession, I wasn't really thinking about the macro. I was just thinking about I wanted to be a good math teacher um, in my classroom. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I, and I think that's oftentimes, I think that experience of so many teachers who, and, and, and it's also part of the, just the profession itself too, right? I mean, even that, calling it a profession, that it's somehow divorced of politics um, or even thinking of these, um, of the relationship between the larger structures of society and how they might impact your, your classroom or even your pedagogy. Yes. Um, Yes, but there is also a place for um, where I was at. I think I, I think where I was at, you know, in the beginning, I just want to be a really good math teacher, and I want my students to have good math solid foundations. Just because I think someone is um, starting to think more um, with a different kind of lens of how policy plays into uh, how I, what kind of experience my students having, Bef even 
even if your mind is getting there, I still think the foundation of a math teacher needs to be how do my students learn math like the other day I went to McDonald's right and because my kids love McDonald's they so once in a while they get a happy meal and I wanted to eat something lighter and I was looking for a salad but did you know they don't serve salad at McDonald's anymore right and so I'm like oh okay that's fine I'll order something else but it's McDonald's let's let's say you went to McDonald's one day and they don't have any burgers anymore Right. That would have been like, what? Just why are they even calling themselves a McDonald's? Right. So even something that I I think that new teachers need to know, and I wish I wish, you know, all teachers would know is even if you start thinking more macro and you start thinking about social justice and you can get beyond the day to day of your classroom and you're thinking about the SEL and you're thinking about how my students belong. Yes. All those things are important, but don't lose sight of if you're a math teacher, your main job is to teach is to if it's for your students to learn math in an environment where they feel like they belong, in an environment where they can question things that are happening in their community, right? But like if someone tells me I want to be a teacher just because I love kids, I'm like, that's not enough. You have to also have passion about the content right? Because that's what, that's what it is. You can't have McDonald's without a burger, right? You can have McDonald's without a salad, but McDonald's without a burger, it's like, why, why don't call yourself a McDonald's and call yourself something else. You can be, you can be a counselor, right? But if, if you don't have any passion for, I just, when we were talking even before this recording and you were telling me about all the books that you've been reading, I can see the passion in your eyes when you're telling me about the books, right? That passion has to be there. Um, about that content so yeah that's something that I always tell my students my uh, my teacher students so now you're finding yourself working for the district which I'm um, that that must have been a really interesting transition mm -hmm. uh, where you're you're obviously working for a university uh, or universities Mm -hmm. that's a different thing than now moving over to um and, and then you went back into the classroom dealing with your students and your administration but now working what is um can you talk a little bit about that what, what is your specific role uh, in um in, in that work yes so it's not really it wasn't really in my plan for this to happen i didn't really plan it um i was I was thinking when I was at the university, I was thinking, oh, if I want to um, have more influence in this university, then I need to get a PhD. And so I, you know, you, you know, um, I got into some programs, but it just wasn't the right time for my family. It, I ended up not going. It was really heartbreaking. And I think that was about two years ago. But even today, I still think about it every day um, because that was my plan it just didn't I have a husband and I have kids and it wasn't our plan and it didn't work out well but uh and so when I ended up not going I applied for some positions and the first one I was offered was a, a teacher on special assignment position in a technology department at the Fullerton School District. So um, it's really about how to um, support teachers and in integrating technology into their work. 
So I did that for a year. While I was doing that, I was also enrolled in a authorization for a computer science credential program um, that I was made aware of at Irvine. And so I decided to do that. I'm 36 years old at that time. I had I realized I had never had any computer science exposure in my life. Okay. My parents, they are not the most tech savvy. Um my uh in my K through 12 education, no one ever asked me, hey, are you interested in this computer science course? Um, I I just realized I had no zero, zero computer science experience. I had not coded a line in my life. I have no idea what computer science is but when i found out this program it was um grant funded so it was free for me to take i'm like why wouldn't i do that i'm i i had this interest i think a part of me was kind of mad like how come i had no exposure to this until i'm 36 but you know what the exposure is here now and i'm going to take the chance so i took the opportunity i think 50 of us started in the cohort it was very intense um 25 i think about half of us finished um but it was very intense i fell in love with I can't I'm not I I'm not like, I'm not gonna lie to me like I'm like an expert coder and I can be front end back end I can program everything no I'm not but I can teach computer science in the K-12 setting and I learned a lot about um even um who uh there's a there's a uh uh there's a I want to call her a educational thinker. Um, she's from MIT. Her name is Joy uh, Bulam Winnie. I want to say her. I'm not exactly sure how to uh, pronounce her last name, but she was very influential to me during my um, during that time. She's she asks in a TED Talk video that is like very viral. She asks, you know, she says, "Who codes matters. Why we code matters." Okay. And um, who does it matters and why we're doing it matters, how we do it matters, okay? So she talks a lot about um, bias in AI. She talks about like how uh, it's very dangerous for um, how c computers can be biased too, right? It's not just human computers because coding them are humans, right? So the programmers are humans. So, so um she was very influential. I was, I was very, um, I felt like I've had a new calling, not just math, but also computer science now. So then I, after the year of being a teacher on software assignment, I became a program specialist for STEM and computer science. And then this July, I became a coordinator, um, for STEM and computer science also. And, um, career technical education, which also involves a lot of STEM and LCAP. Yeah, LCAP is new new thing added to my- What does that stand for? Local control. Um, oh. Yes, okay. yes, yes, our mm -hmm. plan, yes. Okay, that's interesting. So, and then in your capacity then, does that mean you're providing training for teachers in computer science and stuff like that in, in, the, in the district? So that's part of my job. Huh? Also, uh, the programs that we provide in our district to further uh, STEM education, um, also writing grants. Um, I, love, I wear many hats. 
Mm. And do you teach classes with, with students then too? No, also? I don't. No? no. Okay. But it's mostly then the, the grant work and the, the professional development stuff for... Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And in that work then, uh, the professional development, are you including then that framework uh, from your mentor that you're saying about who, who codes and uh, why does it matter and bias and stuff like that? Oh, for sure. Yes, for sure. Um, and also, I'm very concerned about the number of female students that we have in our program, our programming classes. Um, and in, do you know, Eduardo, in, um, in the real field, in the field, in computer science, what percentage of them are females? Are you, do you want to take in, a guess? In, in STEM? In, in, in computer science. Oh, in computer science. Uh-huh. Something like 20%. Yes, bingo. Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> and guess what about in our classes? What percentage you think? What do you mean in classes? In our classes that we offer. That in, in the district? Yes. Yes. I'm gonna say if it's if it's twenty, I'm gonna say ten. It's actually it's about it's it, it depends on the class, but we have some classes that are like 10%. We have some classes that are a little over 20%, but like it averages to be about 20%. 20%. So we're, we're living the, we're living what we produce, right? Like that's, mm-hmm. that's what happens. And so I'm very concerned about that um, because it's not that, like I said myself, I didn't have exposure to computer science at all until I was 36, right? And my husband, I, I, he, he talks about he took AP computer science when he was in high school. I didn't even know that was an option, you know. And and he's not. He he'll say he's the first person who'll tell you like he's not, he's not a uh, like expert in computer science. But for some reason, he he took it, but I didn't. Um, he he had a greater chance of taking it, right? Because for some reason, it's just more biased that way for them to recruit males for males to be retained in that kind of track and I had a less of a chance statistically to be exposed mm. so, so yep. one, yeah yeah go ahead Say something yeah so one thing I'm trying to do is uh that I learned in my credential my computer science credential program that females are more more likely to stay in the computer science track if they feel like they can do something to help others through their computer science knowledge, okay? So it's for them, it's not just coding for the sake of coding, right? It's not just solving problems for the sake of solving problems, but can I make an impact on my world through this? And I don't think it's just females. I think there's a lot of people who are like this. Like I told you, right? My my dad kept telling me, he tried to motivate me to go through down certain paths, by saying you'll make money. And yes, if you be, if you go down the computer science path, you will make money. It's like top 10 jobs. I would say half of them are computer science. It's computer science and healthcare, always in top 10, right? And those things are not, those lists, they don't just base it off of salary anymore. It's salary plus um, how satisfied people feel with their jobs. So these, these jobs are very good, but yet in the field, like you guessed, and it was right, about 20% are females. Um, so um, I think not just females, but just other p- anyone, anyone who's interested in um, who can be interested, but they don't know because they're not exposed or they are exposed, but it's in a manner that doesn't matter to them. Right. I don't care about coding lines and lines. I don't care if it, but if you tell me how I can use this to impact others that might get somebody. 
you know, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about your work is that you're not just thinking about um, the, you know, about the pipeline of like diversifying the the, the field, right? Um, getting more um, like students from mar um, marginalized communities into the field, but also um, developing that critical framework. Because I think um, it won't matter if if you keep diversifying the field if if the subject continues to be taught in the same way, because I think, like you said, um, about the importance about who's coding it, because um, then we're going to then reproduce those same um, structures mm -hmm. um, in in the software that, that's created. Uh, you know, one of the one of the as you were mentioning that person uh, who was your mentor, I was also reminded of um, the book. It's called. Um, Algorithms of Oppression. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that book. It's, it's how search engines reinforce racism. And um, she's uh, Sophia Noble was is, is this researcher from the School of Information Studies. And she did an early study of like the Google search engine. And so, for example, uh, earlier, uh, one of the examples was if you put in um, black girls, into the search engine, you would get all these pornographic images mm. of black girls. Mm. Or if you typed in doctor, you mm. would get like um, images of, of white males, mm -hmm. doctors, mm -hmm. right? And so the question is, like you said, well, who is creating these algorithms to produce these kinds of images or this content, right? So mm -hmm. our biases, it's not that technology is neutral, but it's mm -hmm. who's creating, who's coding it, is mm -hmm. they're also interjecting their biases. Mm -hmm. um, and then she mm -hmm. had an interesting anecdote when I went to hear her speak. She was saying that then Google, what they did was it was kind of like a, like a, a, a one of those when you put uh, tickets. Mm -hmm. They went to her book and they went back and fixed <laughs> the oh. Google search engine based on her on her work of that book. Oh wow! But, yeah. Right. And so, but I right. think that's important work that you're doing um, yeah. in, in terms of thinking of well. What, you know, with this knowledge or what are we using it for? Yes, yes. And the Dr. Joy, I don't know her personally, but she um, she got started in this work because she was using face recognition and she's yeah. a black woman. She's a black woman and the, the t technology wouldn't even recognize her face as a face. So yeah. that's what started her journey. So yes, it does really, it, these computer machine learning systems are not neutral. Like the Snapchat filters too, right? There's all um, yeah. these stories uh, out there and stuff. Yes. So yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, now that you've gone through this journey, if if someone was, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit in terms of, you said in terms of passion, but if someone was gonna is talking to you about entering the field as a math teacher, what would be your your recommendations or your kind of thoughts as you said with this person i mean especially given that it's been tough right being tough at entering being a mm -hmm. teacher not just coming off the pandemic um students coming back into classrooms um but also i mean we just also recently at least here uh in los angeles unified the the, the school district just also renegotiated uh, a new uh, contract be, um, because of concerns over labor, but also wages, where um, you know people 
can even make you know, enough money to work in the places where they where they work mm -hmm. um what would be your thoughts about recommendations or advice for someone who wants to be a math teacher in, in this context and also too right you also have the political climate the pushback of crt the lgbt curriculum banned books it's not a <laughs> it's not a good time right uh for yes. for schools and education you know, uh, especially if you want to enter it from a critical standpoint mm -hmm. i'd say first of all when you're looking for your credential program you need to really look at what that credential program believes in because um, if they're not going to prepare you for the things that you care about, you're going to have a higher learning curve of, of trying to accomplish the things that you're trying to accomplish. So um, don't just go to a program that's convenient, right? But I'd say try to find some professors that you know are going to uh, elevate you in the things you want to be elevated in. Um, uh, and then once you are in the in the classroom, um, it's there's going to be a lot of policies, right, that you don't question because it just seems so normal. Because a lot of things in education, they just kind of are the way they are, and they they just they they're so ingrained into the uh, environment, and they've been there. The policies have them been there for years, and um, you need to if you if if you naively just um you know decide to enforce those then you are going to possibly become something that you told yourself you're not going to be right so um question all the things that you are doing uh and then also these i would say um you you talked about the financial part right uh, I would say the best way to um, this is practically to make a living wage as a teacher, right? Is is um, to to look at the uh, salary scale, right? And and there will be um, some salary scales that don't even they don't take into consideration in anything until. Um, you have certain amount of units or you have a master's degree like they don't they don't really treat you like a professional basically like they will keep you at like $50,000 for like 10 years unless you have the units or you get a master's degree and some people don't really think about this right so then maybe you need to go get a master's degree so that you can elevate yourself on that on the scale because i would say a lot of um districts they they are they are not paying well as um as maybe like as a, as private industries other industries that you know pay more but i would say the best way that if you're going to be a teacher to get more money is to get a master's degree um or if you can't get a master's degree try to calculate with your hr department how many more units i need to take um, in education or whatever you are interested in so that I can be elevated and I, I'm not stuck at the same place for 10 years because once you start making that elevation you're at a certain place and then so um, every year it, you can only improve but yeah if you if you don't play the game right 
yes, you are going to be a 10 year veteran teacher still making $50,000. Um, and, and like I said, my mentor, my mentor that I met in eighth grade, like she taught me all of this when I met her and then, um, yeah, so, um, but in terms of, uh, those are just practical things, but in terms of the, the climate that we're in right now, um, I would say even if it's very, uh, polarized and all that, everything that happens in your classroom though, is you have a lot of control, right? The principal's not in there every day. The board members are not in there every day. How could they be, right? In your in your classroom, you have a lot of control over what happens. And, and, and in education, we always say this, the number one factor in students, in their experience, whether they're going to learn, whether they're going to feel like they belong, is the teacher. That's the number one factor, right? It's not how much money they have. It's not how many programs the school has. It's It's the teacher. Is the teach the teacher the quality of the teacher is going to is the number one influential factor in um, what kind of experience the student is going to have. So that that tells me you have a lot of control, and it tells control is a bad word, but you have a lot of influence, right, on what happens in your classroom. So keep that to heart. Like you, it, it if if you're being scared by the environment, you're still going to have a lot of opportunities to make decisions right that are influencing what happens on the day-to-day of your classroom and then more than that uh, uh so the number one thing is a teacher but if we're going to think about on that on a bigger scale if now we have a group of teachers that are very effective because they are collaborating together and they're they feel like a, they have a sense of community then that's going to affect all of their students and even maybe the whole school right so you need to find people that are going to be your in in your circle right or uh, circle sounds so exclusive but you need to find people that is going to be part of your community when you're trying to do your work right because there's strength in numbers right and there's also when you're together there's um you don't feel so lonely and also you don't want the effect that when you leave the school there's nothing good happening there anymore right so so if you're going to be there forever that's great but even if you're going to be there forever you don't want just the great things happening in your own classroom right so you need to build relationships with people around you just so for your own sanity and for your own sense of belonging but also to to accomplish the things that we're all in it to accomplish. Like there is so much more strength when you get together with other uh, like-hearted teachers. I think that I would, just to extend um, that last point that you're making about joining other teachers, uh, I would also add, I think it's important, especially right now, um, when when you start is to find out who your your union representative is on school so that uh, not only are you do you know about what's happening within your school site but also the larger structure of the union now obviously some schools have better representatives than others and you know if, if that person maybe is not as strong at your school maybe trying to find another one because um i think at this political point um especially right we're seeing this massive resurgence and and teachers jo- joining unions 
and, and it's the unions have been one of the one of the effective ways that uh, teacher salaries have been able to at least um, marginally hold in, in relationship to inflation and also to uh, addressing working conditions at their sites, right? So I think that, I mean, you know, I find it really remarkable, especially last year's UTLA strike, where UTLA went in solidarity strike with Local 99, the, the service workers, where the teachers took, um, uh, um, um, went on strike without pay um, and joined, you know, the Local 99 um, members. And I, I think that's just a remarkable story by itself. And because of that, right, when the teachers were up for renegotiating their own salaries, they were in a much stronger place also to be able to do that. But, um, yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and, just, and maybe just to kind of close close it up, I mean, um, you know, you're looking over your trajectory while you might not be um, in the classroom. Why do you, why are you still um, engaged in, in, in education? Why haven't you decided to think about other professions or, or like you're saying, well, I'm just going to chase more money somewhere else now that I, I can, I can marginally code. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So that's funny because I think people joke about that all the time. Um, But I think uh, like, I, I think that's, how I am and that's how a lot of us are in education we always need a strong why and as long as I can see the why then um I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in education um there's there's so much there's so much work that I feel like I have to do but I have to be honest with you when you get into the nitty-gritty day in day out things there's it wears you down. It does. It does weigh you down and there's not enough hours in a day to get to the things that you really care about. And, um, but, uh, that the, the fact that I still have, I, I still can, I still can, um, like I still can influence some of the things that happen, um, and I feel like I have a sense of efficacy in that way, then if I feel, if I see the why and I can still feel like I'm useful in that why, then I think I would, I would say. So what is your why? So really for me, it comes down to, I, I think I want students to feel joy when they're in the classroom and while they're learning. Uh, that's very important to me because like I shared earlier when I was in high school I was good at school but I was depressed you know and I didn't I didn't feel joyful I didn't feel joy in the classroom um, and I have two girls I want them to feel joy because they spent so much time at school right they spent like six or seven hours every day at school for 12 years and I want them to feel joy um, and what what does that entail? Feeling joy? I feel like it, you have to feel like you belong, and you also have to feel like you're learning something, um, and you feel have to feel like you are contributing something to me, right? I'm not one of those people who are just going to code for the sake of coding or solve a long math problem just for the sake of solving it, and then feeling like oh I'm so smart because I solved it. It's not enough, right? So, um. Yeah, that's something that another interesting thing um, I learned is 
at Berkeley. So I'm facing this problem right now. I'm I'm trying to think how can we increase enrollment of our females in our computer science courses? How can we um how can we get the how can we um we have different schools in our district and test scores of like we take AP exams and the test scores are very different in different populations. Like what's going on there? Is that okay? To me, no. Um so how am I going to address these things? I don't want to just be right now. I, I shared with you that I'm living the statistic that I'm trying to fight against. Right. So it's not easy. Um, one thing I'm trying to do right now is <clears throat> so at Berkeley, they had this same issue a year back, years back. They noticed in their uh, beginning computer science courses, there's like, I don't know, it was really low numbers, not even 20, not even 20% females, way lower. What are we going to do about this? So they changed their um, class. It was called, I don't know what it was called, but it was called um, Introduction to Symbolic Programming or something like that. To They changed it to the beauty and joy of, pro, of computing. The beauty and joy of computing. Okay, so that sounds totally different than like introduction to symbolic systems or whatever it was, right? So they changed it. Then they changed, they didn't just change the title, but then they changed the curriculum so that um, the students can apply more of their right brain while they're doing this. It's not just all computational and like problem solving, but it's, it's they can be artistic. They can mm -hmm. apply it to something they care about. They could, they can find a problem, a solution to a problem they care about, you know? Mm -hmm. So they changed the whole curriculum and the title and, and then, um, they made news years later because they had more females enrolled in that class than males. Right? Yeah. So it's possible. Right. But after that, after that, there's still more work to be done. You can't just hook them in an introductory course. You have to keep, um, they have to save them. them. Yeah. Supporting them and, and making the changes so that they feel like this is a place they belong. Mm -hmm. um, so same thing in our district, I'm trying to uh, make our, computer science program more right-brained how can students incorporate things like art music into computer science how can they build apps to solve problems that they care about how can they bring in their artistic abilities into the apps that they're creating um and is there a place for them to showcase and tell others about what they have created right so that they feel like they're making an impact on others so there's a lot of work that I, I have to do so um and like I said there's uh so many other things that I have to do on a daily basis and it's hard it's it's hard work but incremental changes incremental um things that we can do to work towards the, these goals is worth it for me. Well, it sounds like really beautiful work that you're, that you're doing. And it, it sounds like also like the culmination of just your experiences and your knowledge that you've accumulated from, from different spaces that is, is now you're trying to apply now into your current context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I really want to thank you for for coming here today and for sharing, as I mentioned, your your experiences and, and um, I wish you luck as you continue this work. Um, so thank you again for coming. Thank you.
This concludes another episode of the State of Public Education podcast. If you like this episode, please remember to like us and to share feedback with us. If you would like to be interviewed or would like to recommend somebody to be interviewed, you can reach out to us at the state of public education at gmail.com. I hope I can put the other one in time for, for next week. But if I don't, know that I'm working on it and I will put it up as soon as I can. Wishing you all a great week. See you all soon.